Chapter 24 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 24, Economy and Society, 404-337. to Effects of the Peloponnesian War upon Population and Economy. With the political developments from the close of the Peloponnesian War to the formation of the Hellenic Union under Philip, the economic and social conditions of the period are closely interrelated. We are able but roughly to estimate the effects of the Peloponnesian War upon population and economy. There can be no doubt that the conflict, through waste of life and property, and through the withdrawal of the energies of states from the productive works of peace, was in a high degree damaging. The victors suffered only less than the vanquished. Through losses in war and more through economic causes, the number of Spartan peers had sunk to 2,000, and this body continued throughout the 4th century to shrink till in the time of Aristotle no more than 1,000 remained. The number of inferiors correspondingly grew, while that of the periochi and of the helots remained substantially unchanged. These circumstances augmented the difficulty of governing the newly acquired empire, and even of holding the lower Lacedaemonian classes in subordination. The situation was complicated by the inflow of silver as contributions from the new Aegean allies. Despite a law that the precious metals were to be used by the state alone, private citizens now acquired money, some by embezzling the public funds. Among the latter was Gylippus, an eminent general, who secreted the stolen treasure of Athenian coins beneath his roof, till his servant reported to the ephors that under his tiles roosted many owls. Other Spartans avoided the penalty by depositing their money with their Arcadian neighbors. Thus accustomed to disobedience of law and traditional discipline, wealthy Spartans went through the form of eating their meager repasts at public tables while living privately in unstinted luxury. This expensive standard of life, introduced by the few wealthy, was readily adopted, along with its attendant contempt for the law, by the poorer peers. The increasing luxury and rising prices of imports, together with the long-continued tendency to the concentration of landed property in the hands of women, did more to thin the ranks of the peers than had been affected by the war with Athens. The reason is that a peer whose estate fell menacingly near the minimum production required by his physician had no lawful means of recruiting his failing fortune. For he was still a professional soldier, who could engage in no business nor even work with his own hands in his field. His only resource was to wed a rich wife, yet even thus he might incur the penalty for a breach of the law against an unseemly marriage. At Sparta, feminism nourished by her peculiar usages, had taken the form of lawlessness and intemperance, luxury at table and in dress, basking in dainty robes of costly workmanship, or rearing horses for the chariot events at Olympia. The ostentation and arrogance of women were especially irritating to the lower classes. Among the latter the inferiors, a grade of Spartans too poor to make their contributions to the Sicitia, and for this reason disfranchised, formed a dangerous element in the community. Shortly after the accession of Agesilaus, one of their number, 
Kinadon, hatched a conspiracy for overthrowing the Constitution and leveling distinctions of rank. The plot came to light, and Kinadon, when arrested, gave as his motive, I wished to be inferior to no man in Lacedaemon. He and his accomplices miserably perished, but their death gave no lasting security to the peers, who continued to dwell on the thin crust of a social volcano. It was in fact a misfortune for Sparta that no Kinadon or Lysander, by reform or revolution, succeeded in extending the citizenship, at least, to the Periochi and in emancipating the Helots. Her rigid system, well adapted to a primitive community and exceedingly efficient while the citizens believed in it, had long been obsolete, continued merely by the inertia of the Spartans. They had lost the character essential to its vital maintenance and instead of expanding in culture and in outlook with other Hellenes, they had grown more ignorant and more illiberal than ever. Dreamers like Plato, disregarding the facts, might in imagination transform them into ideal citizens, converting even their shortcomings into transcendent virtues, and Laconizers in various cities might still go about in short chitones, with chistus on arm, and with ears bruised in the curious delusion that by these outward forms they were embodying the manliness of Lacedaemon. Xenophon, however, a practical man, though an enthusiastic admirer of Sparta, saw in the petty ambition and sordid greed of individuals a mark of decadence, whereas the cold reasoner Aristotle found every branch of the government weakened through venality and incapacity. In his opinion, the fundamental defect lay in the mistaken object of their education. The Lacedaemonians brutalize their children by laborious exercises, which they think will make them courageous. In fact, as we have often repeated, education should not be exclusively directed to this or to any other single end. Even if we suppose the Lacedaemonians to be right in their end, they do not attain it. For among the barbarians and among animals, courage is found associated not with the greatest ferocity, but with a gentle and lion-like temper. It is not strange that the Lacedaemonians, while they were themselves assiduous in their laborious drill, were superior to others, but are now beaten both in war and in gymnastic exercises, for their ancient superiority did not depend upon their mode of training the youth, but only on the circumstance that they trained them at a time when others did not. Hence, we may infer that the noble, not the brutal, should have the first place. We should judge the Lacedaemonians, not from what they have been, but from what they are. For now they have rivals who compete with their education, whereas formerly they had none. Here is expressed the opinion that the Lacedaemonians had remained stationary for centuries while the other Hellenes were progressing. Archaeological research, however, convinces us of their actual decline. As usually happens, too, with extreme views, the judgments of Plato and Aristotle are both wrong. In spite of shortcomings, the conduct of the Spartans in crises, as after the Battle of Leuctra, still reveals good results of their discipline, while their inbred courage, their military training, and prudence in authority still recommended individual Spartans as commanders to Hellenic states when menaced by especial danger. It was worthy of her past that, after the overwhelming Macedonian victory at Chironia, Sparta alone of all the city-states continued to maintain her liberty against the victor.
Effects of the Peloponnesian War as a Whole The effect of the war with Athens on Peloponnese as a whole was less marked. The isolation of the peninsula by the Athenian fleet during the early years of the struggle must have greatly damaged commerce. Toward the end of the conflict, when all fear of the Athenian naval supremacy had vanished, there began a tendency to concentrate in cities and to an industrial economy, which continued during the 4th century. Hence it was that Agesilaus could speak of Sparta's allies as potters, smiths, masons, carpenters, and other such mechanics. These changes diminished the number capable of equipping themselves for service in the heavy infantry, while adding to the day laborers and the slaves. Hence, while the total population remained about the same in numbers, it underwent social deterioration. The decline of agriculture was not especially due to an impoverishment of the soil, for toward the end of the century, if we may trust Aristotle, even the surf-worked fields of Lacedaemon were capable of supporting an army of 30,000 foot and 1,500 horse. After all has been said, the military decline of Peloponnese in the 4th century may be traced to political disintegration, more than to waste of war or to economic factors. Sicily. Syracuse, another victor in the war with Athens, made no economic gain through her success, and soon all Sicily had to suffer repeated Carthaginian invasions, involving not only the desolation of fields, but the destruction of wealthy cities. The long tyranny of Dionysius, however, in spite of exactions, brought prosperity to Sicily and contributed to the growth of his capital till it became the greatest city in the Hellenic world. The downfall of the tyranny was followed by other destructive wars, but every new period of quiet renewed her prosperity, while losses in population were made good by colonization. It speaks well for the vitality of the Sicilians and for the continued fertility of their soil that in the 3rd century, when Rome and Carthage first came into conflict, the island was still wealthy and populous. Under Agathocles, 317-289, the population had increased to about a million, the great majority of whom were freemen. From that time, however, it began to decline. Magna Graecia Although in the 4th century the greater part of Magna Graecia fell into the hands of the Lucanians, the cities which remained free were still prosperous. Among them, Tarentum was by far the largest. It is reported that she could put into the field an army of 20,000 foot and 2,000 horse. A reason for her greatness lay in the circumstance that her port was the first reached by ships sailing westward from Greece or southward from the Adriatic coasts, which poured a considerable trade into southern Italy and Sicily. The fertile soil of the Tarentines their fisheries, handicrafts, and extensive trade with the interior, as well as with foreign lands, brought them extraordinary wealth. Thence arose a standard of comfort and refinement which dazzled or shocked the rest of Hellas. Men wore delicately fringed gowns, such as only the most luxurious women elsewhere could afford, and they multiplied the festivals till, it is said, their number exceeded the days of the year. Theopompus, a contemporary historian, thus describes their life. The city of the Tarentines sacrifices oxen nearly every month and provides public dinners, whereas the multitude of private persons are continually engaged in banquets and drinking parties. The Tarentines have some such saying as this, 
Other men, because they are fond of personal exertion, and because they devote themselves to actual labor, thus prepare their subsistence for the future, whereas we, through our banquets and pleasures, are not about to live, but are already living. Naturally, on such topics, writers are prone to exaggeration, and this extreme criticism we may balance by the fact that through the 4th century, the Pythagoreans were a power in the government, whose moderation in the distribution of offices among the rich and poor calls forth the commendation of Aristotle. Despite the commerce and industry of Tarentum, Syracuse, and lesser cities, the economy of Sicily and Magna Graecia was chiefly agricultural. Effects of the War on the Island States of the Aegean Sea Doubtless the greatest sufferers from the wars of the 5th and 4th centuries were the island states of the Aegean Sea, exposed as they were to the alternate ravages of the two hostile powers, and to the more destructive conflicts of civil factions. The waste of agricultural resources in the destruction of vineyards, orchards, and forests, and in the thinning of the soil through forced neglect and through washings by rain, could never be wholly repaired. Vainly, the courageous inhabitants tried to balance the loss of productivity by extending their terraces high up the mountainsides. To the contemporary observer, their poverty seemed pitiable. A partial recovery was experienced under the too brief ascendancy of Athens. It was not till the opening of the east by Alexander that the Aegean islands along the Asiatic seaboard took on a new industrial life, as the center of commerce shifted from Piraeus to Rhodes. The Greeks of Asia The Greeks of Asia, whom Lacedaemon sold to the king, suffered chiefly through lack of respect in the Persian government for the personality of its subjects. It was not enough that the beautiful youths and girls of respectable Hellenic families were drafted into the degrading service and the harems of Persian grandees, but the entire population had daily to submit to the insolence of the satraps and their deputies, whose effeminacy the Hellenes despised. Isocrates declares, They suffer in their own persons harsher treatment than our bought slaves, for no one ill-treats his servants as they, the Persians, chastise free men. Not strange, therefore, was their zeal in supporting Aegisilas and their intense regret at his departure. They were disturbed, too, by the armed rivalries of the satraps and by the operations of the Corinthian War. Afterward, however, came an era of quiet in which, so far as material gains can atone for loss of freedom, they were repaid by an extraordinary increase of wealth and prosperity, chiefly due to freedom of commerce with the interior. Under these favorable circumstances, Ephesus assumed a splendor unknown to her past, and as the capital of Korea, Halicarnassus revived. At the same time, the Hellenes of Asia gradually adapted themselves to Oriental ideas and conditions of life. The Lords of Thessaly In the period now under review, Thessaly came into greater prominence, though less as a master than as a victim of political events. This country contained a larger area of arable land than any other in Greece, but was occupied from old by great lords ruling over a multitude of serfs, the Penestae. Partly for this reason, it was one of the most backward countries in Hellas. Adopting the worst vices of civilization, the masters passed their time in dicing and drunkenness, eating at tables loaded with expensive viands. 
entertained meanwhile by piping and dancing girls. Since the age of Pericles, however, the lords began to open their hearts to the enjoyment of Hellenic culture. Especially rhetoric and sophistry found a welcome home with them, and undoubtedly the latter study had a part in the luckless movement towards social leveling. It is significant that near the end of the 5th century, Phare, the city most accessible by sea to the rest of Hellas, was the scene of an attempt to liberate the Penestae, made by candidates for the tyranny. In their usurpation, they freed the serfs of the neighborhood and armed them against their lords. This movement, however, did not end in a general liberation. The lack of enterprise in the lower class, due to their subjection, kept the general economy pastoral and agricultural. The considerable exports and imports, accordingly, were in the hands of foreigners, who by means of their capital mercilessly exploited the inhabitants. The continual seditions and the military interference of Spartans, Thebans, Phocians, and Macedonians, joined with the established serfdom in augmenting the poverty of the country and in retarding its economic and cultural progress. Attica during the 4th century it is only for Attica that our information affords us a view of the general features of social and economic life during the 4th century, though even for that country there are many disappointing gaps in our knowledge. The remainder of the chapter, accordingly, is given to Athenian conditions with occasional references to other parts of Hellas. Athens, her condition after the Peloponnesian War Naturally, Athens was among the chief sufferers in the Peloponnesian War. Her country was more systematically harried than any other in Hellas, and the thin soil had less to lose by negligence in fertilizing and by the enemy's ravages than that of the islands. The mountainsides became more barren, the rocks protruded more nakedly than before. It is doubtful whether, with all their efforts, the inhabitants ever succeeded in restoring the soil to its earlier fertility. Country dwellings and barns had been burned or torn down and carried off by the Thebans. The livestock had been killed and eaten by owners or driven off by the invaders. More than 20,000 slaves, many of them skilled workmen, had deserted to the enemy. Thus many citizens were deprived of their shop hands and their livelihood. Merchant ships as well as war galleys had perished, and industry pitiably shrank the loss of property in the islands impoverished many citizens formerly in affluence. As for money, says one of these unfortunates, you would have a better chance to find it in the street than to borrow it of a banker. Even more deplorable was the loss of life. In battle, pestilence, starvation, and executions under the thirty, the number of adult male citizens had sunk to about 20,000, and it never thereafter greatly exceeded that total. In addition to dwindling economic resources and a notable rise in the standard of living, it is probable that the spread of malaria from the neglected fields militated against racial vitality. Attica, a country of small farms. Of the total number of citizens mentioned above, fully 20,000 were landowners. Although doubtless many holdings were dwelling lots in the city or Piraeus, there is abundant evidence that through the 4th century, Attica remained a country of small farms. For example, of 16 rural mortgages known to us, which ranged from 500 to 8,000 drachmas, precisely one-half were within the limit of 1,000 drachmas. 
even though the actual value may have been double the mortgage, these farms were remarkably small. In like manner, of nine rural inheritances, ranging from 2,000 to 15,000 drachmas, and representing therefore the better class of landed properties, the average value was 7,500 drachmas. As happens in a country of small farms, the estates of a relatively wealthy proprietor were located in widely separated parts of the country. Far from any tendency toward latifundia, the process of dividing larger estates among several owners was underway in this period, so that when a relatively great farm came upon the market, often it was divided into small plots in order to attract purchasers with restricted means. An estate of 45 acres, one half for cultivation, the rest for woodland and pasture, was considered very comfortable, whereas one of 65 acres was opulent. The facts thus far mentioned point to a healthful country economy. Conditions elsewhere in Hellas were similar. While under oligarchies all the land remained in the hands of a few, in democracies the farms were small. Expressing this general principle, Aristotle says, Now no one is in want because estates are divided into as many parcels as there are citizens. The restoration of the ruined attic farms after the war, involving the planting of trees, the rebuilding of houses, the purchase of tools and stock, was heroically accomplished in the face of enormous difficulties and discouragements. Of that fact, the great number of mortgage inscriptions of the 4th century give evidence. Particularly, the farmers had to compete with imported grain kept cheap by governmental regulation. At the same time, business attractions were such as to induce not a few to sell their farms and move into the city or Piraeus. We hear of an Athenian who made a fortune by buying up worn-out estates and improving them for sale at a higher price. There were always purchasers, for though the profits were small, the investment was safe. There can be no doubt that whereas many farmers failed through ignorance and sloth, it was practicable with prudence and energy not only to make a living by agriculture, but actually to accumulate property. Scientific Farming One who wished to acquire a knowledge of agriculture no longer had to depend on the experience of his neighbors or on the works and days of Hesiod, but could read scientific books on the subject by specialists. Of this literature we have but a brief example in Xenophon's Economist. Farmers of this age paid great attention to the enrichment of the soil, Evidently, they were acquainted even with mineral fertilizers. Ordinarily, they allowed their land to lie fallow on alternate years, as had been the custom for ages, but took the first step toward the rotation of crops in planting a field two successive summers for different products and leaving it fallow the third. We have no means of exactly measuring the productivity, yet Xenophon testifies to the variety and luxuriance of plant life in a climate of extraordinary mildness, and pictures the fishermen as they scud along the coastlands, viewing a panorama of farmsteads and of grain-bearing fields, good and bad, where we now find scant pasture for goats. Commerce. Throughout the 4th century, accordingly, agriculture remained the chief economic basis of Athenian life. Next in importance was commerce which consisted largely of importations and of the transit of merchandise through Piraeus to other countries. In the first place, Attica produced only a third of the grain consumed by its inhabitants. 
The remainder had to be imported from Pontus, Egypt, Sicily, and elsewhere. You are doubtless aware, says Demosthenes to his fellow citizens, that we consume more foreign grain than any other people in the world. The grain, however, which comes in from the Pontus, equals the whole quantity from other markets. And no wonder, not only because that region has an abundance of grain, but because Lucan, who reigns there, has granted exemption from duty to those who export to Athens, and issues an order that merchants bound for our port shall load their vessels first. Having the exemption in this city for himself and his children, he has given it to all of you. Consider what an important thing it is. He takes a thirtieth from all who export grain from his dominions. Now the amount of grain coming to us from his country is about 400,000 medimni, as one may learn from the entry kept by the grain inspectors. This passage affords interesting evidence of tariff reciprocity between Athens and the Tauric Chersonese, Crimea, under King Lucan. So anxious were the Athenians to provide for a grain supply that they made it a capital crime in a citizen or a medic to carry grain to any non-Attic port. And of all grain brought to Piraeus, two-thirds had to be sold in the country itself, leaving but one-third to be taken elsewhere. Among other imports were salt fish, hides, timber for shipbuilding, slaves, fine wines, drugs, paints and dyes, iron, copper, ivory, and innumerable other articles of use and luxury for home consumption or for reshipment to neighboring states. In fact, Piraeus remained the chief distributing center of the Hellenic world. Commerce accordingly yielded ample profits to merchants and shipowners, while furnishing remunerative labor to a numerous class of master shipbuilders, carpenters, sailors, and longshoremen. Athenian Exports in exchange, the Athenians could export wine and oil in their vases, which were now suffering an artistic decline and were therefore less eagerly sought. They sent abroad the products of their shops, especially arms, cutlery, and household furniture. A considerable trade in books was growing up. With papyrus brought from Egypt, books were made in the form of rolls, which were packed in chests and shipped to all parts of the Mediterranean world and even to the Pontic shores. Another product for which there was an increasing demand is thus described by a contemporary. Within its, the country's folds, lies embedded by nature an unstinted store of marble, out of which are chiseled temples and altars of rarest beauty and the glittering splendor of images sacred to the gods. This marble is an object of desire to many foreigners, Hellenes and barbarians alike. Another natural resource of great importance lay in the silver mines of Laurium, whose output had greatly shrunk through the war with Peloponnese. Toward the middle of the 4th century, however, as new veins were discovered and the silver-bearing area widened, the yield became so abundant as to attract an increasing number of contractors and to encourage the false idea that the field was inexhaustible. The right to mine was sold for a lump sum to contractors, who paid annually, in addition to the purchase money, a twenty-fourth of the product. The annual income of the state from this source must have greatly varied and is altogether unknown. Thirty to forty talents a year is a mere conjecture. From the gross income of the contractors the outlay was great, but free labor profited little from it, 
as the manual work was done by slaves. Although contractors sometimes lost money, we hear of one individual who amassed a hundred and sixty, another two hundred, talents, which were vast fortunes for that age. Attic Manufactures By the side of commerce, attic manufactures occupied a secondary place. Industry, however, was safe and profitable. It is significant that under the thirty, and immediately afterward, when Athenian economy was in its most straitened condition, a man with a few skilled slaves could realize a handsome surplus from his shop, and an impoverished citizen could convert his dwelling into a garment factory, and with only his fourteen kinswomen as laborers, could furnish them a comfortable living and actually make money. Industry seems to have been scarcely more capitalized than agriculture. The two shops of Demosthenes, father of the orator, manned by twenty and thirty-two slaves respectively, appear to be typical of the period. Often, in fact, an individual with one or two slaves, or with only his sons, as in the preceding century, managed his diminutive industry, whether shoemaking, stone-cutting, or other enterprise. Only such shops could serve as social rendezvous of respectable citizens. The income of the two shops above mentioned amounted to 42 minas annually. That of the individual shopkeeper was sufficient for the necessities of life without luxury. My poor man, tis true, has to scrape and to screw, and his work he must never be slack in. There'll be no superfluity found in his cot, but then there'll nothing be lacking. Condition of Laboring Class During this period the cost of living nearly doubled. The normal price of wheat, a medimnus, rose from three to five or six drachmas, and there was perhaps an even greater advance in the cost of meat. At the close of the period, a sheep fit for sacrifice was worth about 30 drachmas, an ox of the best quality, and weight, 400 drachmas. At the same time, however, wages doubled or trebled. The daily pay of an ordinary freeman rose from three obols to one and a half drachmas, of a mechanic from one to two and two and a half drachmas. Notwithstanding the rise in the cost of living, therefore, free laborers were in as good a condition at the close of the period as at the beginning. So great was the demand for laborers that no problem of the unemployed arose to vex either statesman or political scientist. Athens had no mob of chronic idlers. Small farms were still cultivated, as in the 5th century, mainly by free hands. Free day laborers were still employed on large estates, although the great majority of hands were servile. The positions of steward and foreman on large farms were open to competent men of free birth, though often filled by slaves or freedmen. From the servile and freed classes, too, were often drawn the foremen of shops and the managers of banks. Slavery had encroached upon free labor somewhat beyond the condition of the Periclean age. To a total of about 100,000 free souls, citizen and medic, we must reckon 120,000 to 150,000 slaves. This encroachment, though appreciable, was not yet sufficient to revolutionize society, create a slaveholding capitalistic class, or pauperize the masses. The higher standard of life in this period made the struggle of the poor somewhat more difficult, but it was still possible for an artisan of average strength and intelligence to earn a fair living for his family, whereas the wife and children of an unskilled workman had always been accustomed to an ill-furnished hut and a meager table. Banking The increase in commercial enterprise of the period promoted the growth of banking. 
The temples had long been accustomed to receive from states and individuals deposits for safekeeping, and in time it was found more and more practicable to let out such sums on interest. Private banks were a development from the money changers' trade, which lay in the hands of slaves and freedmen, and for that reason the great bankers of the period belonged to the latter class. Among them the most notable was Pazion, who lived in the first half of the century. Beginning with nothing, this freedman during his lifetime amassed a fortune of thirty talents. His public benefactions were rewarded with the citizenship, and the soundness of his business character gave him credit throughout the Hellenic world. The method of business was to receive deposits on interest, to make loans at a higher rate on the security of land or capital, to issue letters of credit, and to engage at times in commercial enterprises. In a business of this kind, it was especially advantageous to have an extensive capital and security. With this end in view, partnerships were sometimes formed, as in other enterprises, or banking stock was sold. Measured by the modern standard, however, the greatest banking business of this period was diminutive. The capital of Pazion invested at the time of his death amounted to no more than 50 talents. Though conducted on a small scale, as was every branch of business, banking facilitated the circulation of money and in the same degree the activity of industry and commerce. With this influence cooperated the increase in the volume of precious metals through mining, importations, and the secularization of temple treasuries. These developments, while making it possible for some of the Greek states to issue gold coins, greatly enhanced wages and the cost of living. Limitation of Resources in Greece From the beginning, the Greeks had occupied an area of meager resources, which by sheer energy and intellect they had made to minister admirably to their material and spiritual needs. The field of their activity, however, was narrowly limited, on the east by the Persian Empire, on the west by the Carthaginian sphere of influence. From the richest portions of the known world, therefore, they were cut off and thus from the possibility of amassing gigantic fortunes. Among the causes contributory to the same end, we must reckon the smallness and instability of the states, the rarity and temporary character of partnerships and of business corporations, the love of respectability surpassing the desire for wealth, and finally the spirit of self-restraint which fixed a limit to material desires and ambitions. Hence it was that in the century following the age of Pericles, there was in Athens, the commercial center and money market of Hellas, no overgrowth of capitalism with its attendant laboring proletariat. In fact, no serious disturbance in the proportion of rich and poor. Economic Organization of the Household A potent reason for the slow growth of specialized industries lay in the economic organization of the household which made it in a high degree self-sufficing. Although day laborers and shopkeepers had to buy their subsistence, the majority of Athenians derived from their farms all or nearly all the vegetable and animal products which they needed for their own use. Within the household, these raw materials were converted into flour, bread, yarn, cloth and clothes, leather, and other necessary articles. A few wares only, such as wheat, metals, dyes, and medicine, had to be bought, and the well-to-do purchased in the market fine cloths, shoes, jewelry, wines, and other luxuries, whereas for slaves, homemade articles were good enough. 
The management of such a household was divided between husband and wife. The husband supervised the out-of-door laborers, which were mainly concerned with the production of the raw materials, while he left to his wife their conversion into useful goods. She exercised the function of training the slaves in the skilled industries and of molding their character by punishments and rewards, of nursing them when sick, prescribing remedies according to home recipes, and aiming in all these matters to win their affection and loyalty by kindness. Her task was far more difficult than that of her husband, and involved heavier responsibilities than have thus far been entrusted to women in the modern industries. While Athenian women were still legally incapacitated for business, and were often spoken of as inferior, the intelligent man willingly admitted that his wife was equal to himself in worth, and might even be his superior. Some, as Plato, were of the opinion that women were by nature like men, and should for that reason engage in political and military life. Others, like Xenophon, held that, though equal, they were different by nature, and adapted, therefore, to a different set of functions. From this class of thinkers came the highest tribute to woman. Xenophon represents a citizen as thus addressing his wife, after remarking upon the joy of success in the performance of her manifold functions. But the greatest joy of all will be to prove yourself my better, to make me your faithful follower, knowing no dread, lest as the years advance, you should decline in honor in your household, but rather trusting that though your hair turn gray, yet in proportion as you come to be a better helpmate to myself and to the children, a better guardian of our home, so will your honor increase throughout the household as mistress, wife, and mother, daily more dearly prized. For it is not through excellence of outward form, but by reason of the luster of virtue shed forth upon the life of man, that increase is given to things beautiful and good. Marriage and Divorce The legal object of marriage was the perpetuation of the family, that the gods might receive their customary sacrifices, and the state might not lack citizens. Over and above this aim were recognized the motives of mutual helpfulness and affection, a happy life, and during old age protection and support, if needed, at the hands of children properly reared. As the resources of the country were limited and colonization had become impracticable, statesmen and political thinkers considered it necessary to keep the population stationary. From primitive times, the father had continued to exercise the discretionary right to expose his children at their birth. Girls and weak or deformed boys were most frequently the victims. Exposed children died or were taken up and adopted by others, or were enslaved or condemned to a life of shame. This usage is so repugnant to Christian civilization that we cannot treat it with equanimity. While militating against human kindliness, it contributed to the physical vitality of the race. Eugenists added regulation for marriage and for the birth and nurture of children. In Athens, these advantages were more than offset by the early wifehood of girls and the frequent intermarriages of near kin. As the Athenians were not essentially a money-making people, they attached great importance to keeping the paternal estate within the family. In this spirit, they preferred to give a daughter or sister in marriage to a kinsman that the dowry might not fall into alien hands. Property was divided equally among sons, and girls received dowries roughly proportioned to the value of the estate. If there were daughters only, they inherited, but in that case the nearest male kinsman had a right to claim them in marriage. 
To clear the way for such unions, it often happened that divorces were brought about. By such means, the usages of property too often rendered marriage and divorce a purely business arrangement, and thus undermined the stability of the family. Average Life of Athenians Our most intimate knowledge of Athenian life and social thought is reached through the medium of the orators, through the pleadings of plaintiff and defendant in the courts of law. It is the nature of such sources to bring to the light of day the most sordid and petty side of a people's character, and yet the modern reader of these speeches is forced to the conviction that the Athenian litigants and their kinsfolk had normal ideas of right and wrong, that they possessed approximately the same failings and the same virtues as the people of today, that there was among them no widespread want or misery, that in brief the average life of the plain Athenians was wholesome and happy. End of chapter 24